Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Ken Anderson, founder and CEO of Thermaquatica and professor of geochemistry at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and Scott Hamilton Bream, associate professor of microbiology at Southern Illinois and collaborator with Thermaquatica. Thermaquatica is a startup working on new pro- on a new process called oxidative hydrothermal dissolution or AH or OHD as we will refer to it here on this podcast. What is this and what could it be used for? We're going to find out today. Now, we are talking to two university professors, but I assure you this will not be your typical university lecture. It is going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. I'm going to stop talking now, and let's get to our guests. Ken, Scott, thank you for joining me here on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Thermaquatica. Scott, let's have you go first, and then we'll jump to Ken. Uh, hi, thank you for uh, having us. Um, my name is Scott Hamilton Bream. I'm an associate professor of microbiology. Uh, my background is in extreme biochemistry. I work with extreme organisms. Um, think of you know Yellowstone National Park and areas like that, uh, thermal fields and so forth. But there's another extreme environment that's deep underground where. The sunlight doesn't reach. The environment is very hostile um, comparatively to us. But um, these organisms are very interesting. So my lab works uh, using both traditional microbiology techniques, but also bioinformatic uh, techniques to basically figure out what microbes are out there, what do they do, how they do it. And um, there's a lot of unknown where we call dark matter microbes. And uh, that's what we do, or that's what I do. That's what, my, what we look into. Thank you for that. And Ken, what about you? Hi, Joe. Thanks for the invitation to be here. As you said, I'm a professor of geochemistry at SIU. I'm also the director of uh, SIU's Advanced Energy Institute, so I'm responsible for all the energy programs at SIU. Uh, and I'm the founder and CEO of Thermaquatica, which was a company we started about 10 years ago to commercialize OHD technology, which was developed at SIU. I'm a organic chemist by training, a geologist by professor, profession, a, uh, an engineer by accident, and uh, I sort of work on all things related to energy and energy problems associated with the use of energy, including climate change. Well, thank you, too, for that introduction and the introduction to Thermaquatica. 
new ideas, processes, and technologies are always fun to discuss, but not always easy to translate. And as you could tell, I I have an issue just saying oxidative hydrothermal dissolution. So help us all understand. Let's break this down into as simple a process as possible. What is this OHD thing that you guys are talking about? You're right. I'll take this one if you don't mind, Scott. Uh, You're right, Joe. Oxidative hydrothermal dissolution is too much of a mouthful, even for those of us that speak geek. So OHD will do from from the get-go. What it is, OHD is a very simple process. It simply uses super hot water and a little bit of oxygen to break down organic materials. Um, So we take things like waste biomass or plastics or coal or other kinds of organic materials we put them in superheated water and by superheated i mean you know 250 300 degrees celsius kinds of numbers under high pressure and we introduce just a little bit of oxygen and we break down that organic matter into a water soluble product so if you want to picture what happens is you put in this solid material and what comes out looks a lot like a a really intense cup of tea with all that organic matter now dissolved in the water. And that's what OHD is fundamentally. It's a process for breaking down solid organic materials into water-soluble products. Okay. So that that's very helpful. That makes it very clear. Breaking down organic matter, turning it into, as you put it, it's, it's a almost a tea. Made me think of compost tea when we're talking about some type of gardening. Yep, that's exactly right. Okay. And now, oftentimes when we're talking about carbon or breaking down carbon, we are referring to it in part of the carbon capture and sequestration process. So trying to take this carbon and put it into the ground. And usually that's associated with something like burning fossil fuels in a smokestack, direct air capture. But here you are talking about breaking down the biomass really before it's getting burned and extracting that carbon from it. Yeah. So go ahead. Okay. You've, you've hit the nail on the head. Um, Traditionally people talk about CCS or, or carbon capture and sequestration. They're talking about capturing CO2 before it's released to the atmosphere, which is, which is great. We need to cut down our emissions of, of, carbon escaping into the atmosphere and going to a big smokestack or an ethanol plant or something like that, capturing the CO2 before it escapes, that's important. We've got to do that. But what do you do about the carbon that's already in the atmosphere or carbon that you can't easily capture? And the answer is you've got to suck that carbon back out of the atmosphere. And there are two ways to think about doing that. The first is what you just referred to. It's called direct air capture. And that's where you take air, pass it through some kind of mechanical device and capture the carbon dioxide that's in the air as carbon dioxide and do whatever you're going to do with it, put it underground or use it or whatever. But there's another technology that's out there for capturing carbon out of the atmosphere. It's called plants. 
That, that's what plants do. They suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and they turn it into biomass. And they're really good at it. And to give you a bit of perspective, one pound of raw plant matter, about the same as you'd have in one ear of corn after you've taken off the, the kernels to, to use as food, the biomass in one ear of corn contains about the same amount of carbon as one million litres of air. And it's already captured and concentrated for you. So our strategy is to start with that, let plants do the capture, and then we'll break it down into this water-soluble fluid that we can handle. Mm -hmm. And we'll put that underground instead of putting CO2 underground. That's our strategy. Yeah, that's... I guess I've never really thought about it from that perspective of of the idea of carbon capture from the air. That is literally what plants are doing. That is yeah. how they are growing. Yeah, exactly. And think about this. In order for us to take carbon dioxide out of the air by direct air capture, we have to build an entirely new industry. You know, we have to start from scratch and build an industry to do that task. Or we can piggyback onto the back of an enormous industry that already exists. It's called agriculture. Ag agriculture is basically industrialized photosynthesis. So by definition, it's industrialized carbon capture. We just don't think about it in those terms. But that's what it is. Okay. So that really helps. It, it makes it clear capturing carbon from dead plant matter is is already it is already concentrating the the carbon aspect of that but one thing that earlier we talked about compost tea and and as a as a amateur i admittedly say failed gardener at home i am well aware that you need to be adding in that compost and adding in that plant matter back into the soil so just one one concern I could see with this is soil health. How does how does pulling the carbon out of the dead biomass ultimately do, does that affect soil health where this would be going back into the subsurface? Scott, do you want to tackle that one? You're the microbiologist. <laughs> yeah. So um, if you think about the earth, every year breathes CO2. You can watch the amount of uh, CO2 uh, rise and fall as the seasons go. So this is a normal process. And then soil health, same thing. The earth is breathing gases and all that. You, basically, we're not talking about eliminating all of the inundation and the recycling of carbon and nutrients into the soil. I mean, we need the soil to be healthy and have the microbes doing their thing, but we're talking about kind of intercepting a percentage, a yearly percentage of carbon that normally would be remitted back to the atmosphere. That's what we're going after. We're not looking at trying to alter the, the chemistry or the health of, of the land or the soil that we do grow crops from. Um, and there's also many sources of biomass that can be uh, uh, used for this process. I mean, it doesn't have to be, uh, per se, uh, you know, agriculture. It could be sewage. It could be other sources of biomass that has no value, that ends up in landfills and remits eventually back to CO2. 
So there's many avenues to go after this. But obviously, yeah, we yeah, you don't want to be interrupting that process, which is soil health. Yeah, and, and keep in mind too, Joe, when you make compost in your back garden, whatever, if you feel like me, I have a compost bin that I, I use. And every year I pile in all sorts of organic waste and after two or three years I take the compost out. Only about 10% of what I put into that bin ends up as compost. The rest just mineralizes back to CO2 and just escapes out of it. That's why you can keep throwing compost, you keep throwing waste into your compost bin and it sort of set, keeps settling down because it's breaking down in, the, in releasing CO2 back to the atmosphere. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point because I... I totally understand that phenomenon of filling up the bin and walking away for six months after the fall and you put all your leaves in and then you come back in the springtime and it's, it's one tenth of what it was. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Hmm. So that really, that really helps. And just to, to highlight that a little bit more, I think the most important parts of, of that compost are, the trace minerals, things like the potassium, the sodium, the, the phosphor, do those, are those incorporated or, or pulled out through this OHD process? Largely no. What, what happens in the OHD process? We'll put biomass or, or, or some organic material in, into our process and about 90% of it will break down to, to water-soluble materials. The minerals, the, the things, they're not affected. So there's a little bit of biomass that doesn't convert very readily, the, 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 the toughest, the most recalcitrant material, and any mineral matter doesn't convert. And that comes through the process, and we, we sort of collect that at the back end. And that's roughly equivalent to that 10% of compost. Most of the things you're talking about, things like potassium and calcium and so forth, will stay with that solid. There's a little bit that goes into the water, that's true, but most of it just absorbs onto that solid and stays with that solid. Okay. So I, I definitely understand the process more now. And it, frankly, it seems pretty simple and it seems straightforward. So why hasn't this done, why hasn't this been done before? Why weren't podcasts invented before? Why, you know, what, why did it take so long for people to come up with, you know, laptop computers and so forth? Every idea has its day. Um, we developed this process. We started about 10 or 15 years ago working on it as a way to, to try and utilize coal without making CO2. We're trying to find benign uses for coal. And it works. I mean, the, we, the original funding was for that purpose, and we managed to figure out we could break down coal. Once we did that, we realized, hey, this has many, many more applications than just coal. And you can apply this to a lot of different types of problems. It's a very foundational kind of technology. Um, and, you know, we thought of it when we thought of it, so it came along when it came along. But now that it's here, we're, we're just beginning to scratch the surface of the different applications that you can use this. And you're dead right when you say it's really simple. Uh, it just water, heat, and a little bit of oxygen. 
get the conditions right and it'll work. There's no magic catalysts or, you know, as, as my students say, no foo-foo dust in it. It's just <laughs> heat, water and oxygen. That's it. Um, and that's actually a tremendous advantage because it means that this is technologically very simple. It can be applied by, it can be applied virtually anywhere to a lot of different types of materials. Uh, a lot of different circumstances can be accommodated, uh, can be applied in different ways. Um, that, that simplicity is a huge advantage, not a, not a disadvantage. Hmm. Oh, if I may interject a little bit, uh, add a little history. Um, I, I was a postdoc at uh, Oak Ridge National Labs and I was working on biofuels and this was about 10, 15, you know, 10 years ago or so. And um, the dream, I mean, we were engineering and working with extreme organisms to break down biomass to use as a fuel to uh, for the microbes to generate other fuels. We had this dream like, wow, wouldn't it be great if we can break down that biomass? Because we were using specialized organisms. We were using all this stuff that was fundamentally very difficult. So that that dream existed a decade or so, even before. And then here, Ken's invention, discovery, this is what we needed. We needed to be able to find a way to easily break this stuff down because we were resting everything on the microbes to do the work. And they can do it. But it was hard. It was hard even for the microbes to do it. Just mechanical means it's simple. It really de-bottlenecks that part of it for the microbiology. Mm -hmm. I, I'm no microbiologist. I always defer to Scott on microbiology questions. But the, the way I think of it is it, it's hard for microbes to eat things that are solid. It's easy to eat for them to eat things that are in solution. So we... We've got a process that breaks it down into a form that the microbes can eat on. I know eating is the wrong term, Scott. You can correct me. <laughs> that um, works. But microbes just like things that they can just suck out of the water. So we put it in water. They like that. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about that for a little bit. You now have this, this carbon water solution. What are some of the ways that that can be used first starting above ground we now have this this water with carbon in it is this a is what is this a feedstock for well the answer is it can be used in a lot of different ways um as as scott just alluded to we can we can take the solution we can feed it to microbes so they can ferment it so they can turn that carbon into things like alcohols or or other fermentation products that we, we can utilize it for that sort of purpose. It also contains lots of really interesting chemicals that um, can be used for things like biodegradable plastics and things like that, that we were, were early targets for, for our research. And that's, that's still out there. We'd still really like to pursue that. But the one that's kind of got our attention right now is you can just take that whole mixture of carbon and pump it underground. And when you do that, what you've done is you let plants take carbon out of the atmosphere. You've turned that carbon into a liquid and then you've put that liquid back down into the rocks. So overall, you've taken carbon from the atmosphere and you've put it deep underground. And that's, that's the equivalent of direct air capture. But that's carbon sequestration. And right now, humanity's 
greatest problem, greatest challenge is climate change. We've been for the last couple of hundred years, we've been dumping carbon into the atmosphere and that's coming back to haunt us. We're seeing that every day. Um, everyone can look outside right now and well, at least right now for when we're recording this and it's really hot. Okay, we're in the middle of a really intense heat wave. Um, and that's as, in large part a result of what we've been doing. We need to fix that. And this technology will be one part of the solution to that. And so that's our current primary focus. Okay. And I think that that makes sense. CCS is a, a very hot topic right now, not because of the, the hot weather that we're dealing with right now, but because of exactly what you're saying, the pulling that carbon and reducing the carbon in the atmosphere. Now, how exactly does a liquid, I guess a, a carbon water, how does that change CCS compared to trying to just inject CO2? Well, CO2 is is challenging in many ways. If you've got CO2, by all means, put it underground. Don't release it into the atmosphere. That, that's, that's a bad thing to do. Okay. <laughs> but if you have to capture CO2, CCS stands for carbon capture and sequestration. So there are two parts to it. You've got to capture it first, and then you've got to sequester it. And if, if you talk to geologists and engineers that work in this area, they'll tell you capture is the pain point. Sequestering CO2, if you've got it, is relatively straightforward, but capturing it is really, really hard. And the more diluted it is, the harder it is. Okay, So it's bad enough doing it from flue gas from a, a power plant or something like that, but it's really enormously hard when you talk about taking it out of the atmosphere. So our approach circumvents that. We let the plants do the hard work for us. And we're doing it anyway to grow food for ourselves. So we just piggyback on that, take the part of the plant that we don't need for our own food, and now we can convert that into a form that we can sequester. We can't sequester the solid. That just doesn't work. We can't dig holes big enough or anything like that. But if we convert it into a liquid, that we can pump. That we can put down a hole and squeeze it out into the, to the voids in the rock that are already there. And once we do that, we've sequestered that carbon. So it's just an alternative way to, to sequester the carbon. Sequester CO2 if you have to, but if you don't have to, you can do the same net effect by sequestering other forms of carbon. So one of the big problems that I see with CCS is the is keeping the carbon in the ground. Oftentimes, one of the number one things is the monitoring aspect of any type of sequestration project, making sure that you don't have leakage. Now, I guess here, how do you know that this carbon is going to stay in the ground? Well, <laughs> think, think of this. Have you opened a soda bottle recently? Yes. Okay. As soon as you opened the soda bottle, what happened to the CO2? It released. <laughs> it released. It came right back at you. What happened to the sugar that was in the, the soda? It all stayed right there. 
Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's 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 the problem. CO2 wants to be a gas. So if you're trying to squeeze that down into the ground and you have any hole anywhere, it's going to come right back at you because it wants to expand again. But in our process, that carbon is dissolved in water and we're just putting that water down into the ground where there's already water. We're just putting water in water. There's nothing driving it to come back at us. So it's a much simpler problem in terms of being sure that it stays down there. Because just like opening the soda bottle, the gas wants to escape, but the stuff that's dissolved in the water, it's, there's nothing moving it to escape. So it stays there. Okay. Scott, did you have any... Earlier, you mentioned the, the microbes at this point yeah. on our scoping call. So, um, yeah, so the, as Ken mentioned that, there's, there's different ways to look at it. Our method solves a couple, you know, things. The general idea is the same. We want to put carbon down there. Um, think of CO2 as literally it's burnt carbon. There's not a lot of energy associated with it. There are microbes out there that fix CO2, very much like plants. Uh, and, but if you're putting down supercritical CO2, it's all burnt carbon. There's no energy source. So from a microbial standpoint, you're going to starve. You're going to, there's all this carbon and there's not enough energy to fix it all. So that's a problem. Um, the liquid carbon, our, our method, has still energy bound within the carbon-carbon bonds. Microbes can work with this. So now you're giving them something else. You're giving them the carbon, which we want to do, but also you're giving them the energy necessary for them to harvest and then reconvert it. And so what they're going to do, so it's kind of like a little bit of a double whammy here. We, the liquid is not going to want to come back up, but the microbes in the subsurface are going to take a look at this. And go, okay, we can work with this. And they're going to start fixing it. They're going to start working on making more body mass, uh, lipids, uh, and so forth. And so the fur, that liquid CO2 further gets fixed into the subsurface. Now, one of the you know, concerns per se is like microbes can burp out CO2. They can burp out methane. I, my lab has several uh, samples from subsurface uh, areas around the country, and we are testing it. And in this anaerobic environment, they're not, they don't want to burp out CO2. They actually can't. There's not enough ox oxygen to do that. They're just making more of themselves. So it further just supports the, our idea, which is that the microbes will eat it. They're going to fix it. They're going to keep it down there. They're not going to re-emit it. They're not going to allow it to re-emit because to them, down there, it's like a desert. There's not enough energy, not enough uh, food. And so they're going, to, they're going to hold on to this. This is good. Um, getting a whole mass of supercritical CO2, that's not good for them. They don't, they're not going to really go for that too much. Hmm. Interesting. So if I hear what you're saying correctly, it's already a desert in the subsurface by putting in supercritical CO2, what we are doing is we're taking that desert to a place like Mars, making it even harder for them to exist. Whereas yeah. if we are pumping in the liquid carbon water solution, there we're basically dropping them food crates, mm -hmm. giving them an opportunity. Yeah. And again, we want to... A lot of times people think of microbes and they always think of the pathogenic ones. The vast majority of microbes are beneficial and good, and we should be recruiting them. We should be using them to help us out. In this case, we are. We're, we're, they're down there. 
you know, they, they're, we don't know too much about them, but they can be used to help climate change. They can be used with OHD to help solve the problem, which is we need to keep the carbon down there. It's where we found it originally. We need to put it back and keep it down there. Hmm. So speaking of all of the, the carbon talk, a lot of the focus on new technologies is talking about the carbon intensity level. Many of these claim to be carbon negative. And as we're talking about this, it sounds very similar that this would be this would be somewhere on that spectrum of close to carbon negative. And if you're carbon negative, that means you are part of the solution. Ultimately, that's where I would say many technologies need to be. So where does OHD and I guess specifically tying that in with CCS, where does that fall in this kind of carbon intensity scale? That, that's a really, really good question because there are a lot of technologies out there that <clears throat> don't aren't as good as they sound, and people were right to ask that question. Um, you may have heard recently that um, our technology was one of the technologies that was near the top of the list for the, the X Prize from the Musk Foundation. Part of the the process for applying for that was we had to have an independent life cycle analysis of our process, which is look at all the, the, the sources of carbon going in, look at all the sources of carbon going out, and where does the balance lie for this process? And we do use energy. We need heat to make our process work. And, and oftentimes heat involves emitting some carbon that offsets some of the carbon that you put in the ground. So where does the balance lie? The analysis of, that was done of our process says that for every, uh, it's about two to one, meaning we are we are very negative. We put two, two atoms of carbon in the ground for every one that we emit. Most processes aren't anywhere near that. Uh, we'd like to get better and we think there's room for our, our technology to improve, but we are definitely in the negative space. Um, not just a little bit, we're, we're two to one negative, and that's that's a really good place to be. And we can improve on that even further. There, are, There's still room to, to improve our technology, to make it more efficient, to combine it with other things, um, and, and increase that number even further. But yeah, technologies, when you look at the whole cycle from go to woe, um, you've got to be negative, and a lot of them are only neutral or maybe just a smidge negative. We are substantially negative. And, and the reason is simply that the, the biomass is already so concentrated. There's so much carbon in it. Um, and we don't have to put that much energy in to break it down. So we've already got this enormous source of carbon. And all we've got to do is break it down and pump it underground. Um, so we've got this big advantage before we even start. A lot of carbon capture technologies um, have what's called a parasitic load. And for direct air capture, in most cases, that parasitic load is almost as bad as the emissions associated with that parasitic load almost offset the emissions that you capture. Hmm. So you, you do, you've got to capture a hell of a lot to start having a real impact. Yeah, and I think that's why you see the 
the largest direct air capture projects occurring in places like Iceland, where you have completely renewable electricity that is a, granted geothermal, their geothermal is not perfectly carbon neutral because there is some natural carbon being released from those, but they're, they are very clean energy. And when you're talking about a process that for OHD, that's at 280 degrees Celsius, is that if I heard you correctly, that seems like there's going to be quite a bit of energy going into that process. Are there ways that you can further reduce those energy needs or make those cleaner? Yeah, absolutely. There, there, are, there are at least two big opportunities right, right there to, to reduce our energy and, and the, the CO2 or the carbon footprint of our energy sources. The first is we can recapture more of the heat that we use. We can become more thermally efficient. So you put in heat, but you recycle that heat as, for as long as you can. Um, and we can make our process more efficient that way. The other way is when we did our calculations, we did not assume any renewable energy. We assumed we were using natural gas. Okay, and the reason for that is right now, if we deploy more renewable energy, you know, if we build more solar plants, more wind plants, the best place to put that energy is to displace things like coal and natural gas that are emitting CO2. So until there's an excess of green energy available to us that we can tap into, we're not assuming that we're going to, to do that in our calculations. We love to get to that point. And I hope that as a society, we get to that point real quick. But until we do, we're not making that assumption for our process. And Scott, from the microbiology perspective, are there are there any advances that can be made with microbiology and with these with these bacteria and microbes that would that would facilitate this speeding up of the process? And yeah, I mean, what well, again, like the, the OHD debottlenecks, it breaks down the solid matter. You have a carbon stream that's amenable to microbes. You can send the majority of it down underground. You can say take a, a side stream and co-benefit. Have microbes produce something else. They can you maybe produce a fuel if you want to burn that or stuff like. There, there. The micro again. We just made now a soluble stream for microbes, and there is an unlimited resource of microbes you can use to do different things. Obviously. The end game is we want to sequester carbon. We want to be negative. So the ones down underground, they're going to do their job. If we need to recruit others on the surface to do something different, we can do that too. It, again, like I say, it just it removes the barriers. We can do practically anything we want. We just have to have the microbes as the living catalyst to make the conversion. And I'll note too, just in passing, Scott's answer is absolutely correct. Think if if we're successful in that, that provides a revenue stream to offset the cost of doing this. Um, right now, all carbon capture processes are basically revenue negative. And you, you, you pay money to capture the carbon and then you bury it. Um, in our case, there's the, at least the potential for having products coming out along the way that can be sold to raise money to offset the costs of the sequestration. 
that's a potential advantage for our process as well. But I stress potential. We still have to make sure that that can be reduced to reality. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's a really good point, though, that because what you're doing is you're generating that that feedstock that could go one way or another, ultimately, you essentially can decide, are there are there carbon credits that I can sell this to that are making me money? Or is it better to go make a renewable diesel or some type of other renewable plastic, as you were talking about earlier, something that ultimately it's just a, it is the, the raw material that can then be used for whatever is the higher paying product is almost what it sounds like you can get to. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That you've, you've got it exactly right. So it sounds like that is in the future though. And that is the end goal. Where is the technology today? There, there are a variety of different ways of calculating what, what you call a technology readiness level. Um, but using the most common one, we're at about technology level four, which means that we've demonstrated this at the, the small engineering scale, and we're ready to take it up to you know, commercial demonstration scale. Uh, but we have not yet built our first commercial scale plant. That's, that's the next big challenge for us. Um, We've got all the pieces in place. We, we know how it has to be done. We need to raise the money. We need to find the engineering partners to work with us. And then we can we can kick this over the over the goal line, so to speak, and, and fully commercialize it and demonstrate it at a big commercial scale. Hmm. And you know, we, if we can, I guess, do this fast enough, also the there's this, the last part of the XPRIZE challenge, which is we have to do 1,000 metric tons of uh, sequestered underground by 2024. Yeah. Might, be, might be a little bit of a tall order, but we could do it. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a doable target. We've, the technology is just not that sophisticated and not that complicated. So building a, a, a plant that could sequester a thousand tons of carbon is not an enormous engineering challenge. Okay. Well, I think that ending on that technology readiness, I think that is a good way to segue. I actually have a special request from you, Ken. I, and for the audience, I actually went to Southern Illinois for my undergrad and and Ken, your class was one of those that I I tried to make it to as often as possible. But being at 8 a.m., and I think it was a Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So you've got two things going against you there, 8 a.m. and on, on what is a college weekend there, <laughs> that being Mondays and Fridays. So... <laughs> So, but I, I was lucky enough to glean some very wise words of wisdom from you and things that I regurgitate on a monthly, if not weekly basis. One of those being climate change is not a problem for the earth. The earth is going to be fine. Climate change is a problem for society. And I don't know if I got that quote exactly right, but I, I remember you saying that and that just has always stuck with me. And when somebody asked me, what does that mean? I always fumble through it. So I, I was hoping you could elaborate on that idea a little bit more and, and really drive that point home for the audience. 
Sure. First of all, I have to say, I'm thrilled that you remember what I taught you. (laughs) That's music to any professor's ears. I mean, that's just great. (laughs) So what do I mean by that statement? Um, Look, I'm a geologist, so I take a fairly long-term view of things, much longer than, than, than most people do. And 10 or 12,000 years ago, right where I'm sitting right now in Carbondale in Illinois, was tundra. The earth was much colder. We were at the end of an ice age and the environment was rich and lush and beautiful. There were elephants and, you know, mastodons and mammoths and woolly rhinos, all kinds of animals. It was a great environment. The earth was doing fine. But for most of the earth's history, the earth's been much hotter than we are now. We were basically a tropical world for for large parts of the Earth's history. And the environment was rich and lush and beautiful and the Earth was doing just fine. The environment will adapt to the climate and the Earth will be just fine. Whether it's warmer or colder, it doesn't matter. It's not that climate change will destroy the environment. It's that climate change will change the environment. And that's a problem because we built our civilizations on the assumption of the climate that we exist in now. And if you change that climate, if you do anything to perturb that environment, it becomes very difficult to sustain the civilizations that we've built around the assumption of this climate. And you know, there's lots of historic examples of things that disrupted the environment that caused civilizations a lot of problems. And I could give you lots and lots of examples of that. But if we change the, the, the climate for the entire planet, it's going to be very, very difficult for us to sustain the civilizations that we've, we've built. And so what the point I was making with that, that statement to you is, Climate change is not an environmental problem in the sense that it won't damage the environment. It will change the environment. But changing the environment is a huge problem for human beings, for the civilizations that we depend on. So a short follow-up to that. Do you still stand by that statement? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I, I... yeah, 100%. It, it's not that I want to see the environment changed like everyone else. I like what we have. But in the long term, you know, who's to say that a tropical planet or an ice planet is a better planet than what we have now? It's only better for us if we have what we have now. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think the, the cool part, and I think what, what you said earlier is that now we actually have the technology to, to be able to adapt or mitigate or, or in some cases using OHD, we could actually start removing significant amounts of CO2 from the atmosphere. So in some ways we can stabilize what the climate is doing and, and we don't, we can be in our happy, happy little climate bubble, if you will. Right. We, 
250 years ago, we started messing with the, the world's environment by moving carbon out of the rocks and putting it into the atmosphere. Now we have the tools and the will and the drive and the need to do it the other way, to take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back in the rocks where we got it from in the first place. And we, can, we have the ability to rebalance the system that we've sort of perturbed. Uh, and I think that's, that's something we have to do if we want to live in what you just call the, our, our climate bubble, our preferred climate regime. And yeah, that's important to us. And this is almost like science fiction. I mean, this, you know, terraforming. So uh, usually material for lots of great stories. And, and it's real. This is a real problem. But now, yeah, we're talking about engineering whole planets to our you know, advantage, of course, or to what we like it. And but remember, Scott, we're already doing that. When yeah. we started digging up fossil fuels and making cement and changing land use and all the other things we do that emitted CO2 to the atmosphere, we were accidentally <laughs> terraforming the planet. We were turning it from what it is now or what it was then into a tropical world. And that may not suit us very well. Right. So we're, yeah. we're getting better at it. Now we, we can change it one way and then we can bring it back and all that. And uh, who knows what else we can do on, you know, on other planets, literally. Yep. Well, thank you for that. With that, I want to switch into the final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. So I want both of you to answer them. The first one being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Scott, Scott let's... <laughs> um, I actually read a lot of books. So um, I don't know. I would say... My all-time fire is probably 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne, um, but maybe a little more modern uh, Andromeda Strain by Michael Crichton. And the one that I would recommend that I've finished recently is a book called Energy, A Human History by Richard Rhodes, which looks at the impact of uh, the way in which humans have utilized energy on human history and civilization over the last thousand years or so it's been, it was a really eye-opening book hmm. so what is andromeda's train about well i don't want to give away the story but i would say most microbiologists have read that story it's a very uh, uh, profound kind of story written by michael Crichton. idea that you know we bring a satellite back and uh, there's a hitchhiker on the satellite and uh you know, it's basically a story invasive species. You got a, a microbe that doesn't belong on Earth, starts uh, doing some things, and how do we humans handle that? And also, what are the ramifications to the future? Hmm. I like that. And energy, a human history, that also sounds fascinating. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I, I believe that most people have read it, or at the very least have seen the movie with... with um, <laughs> And now I'm blanking on his name. And it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on, when will we be net zero as a society? When we choose to be. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not a question of, you know, a specific date. It's a matter of our will to get there. Hmm. I like that. 
Scott, did you have anything to add to that? No, I, I concur with Ken. It's, you know, we humans have to take action. You know, you can't wait around for something to happen. You know, and not in the, you know, in this case, talk about a whole planet. This is our home. You know, we don't have a, a, you know, planet B to fall back on. So if we, if we care, if we uh, want to uh, stick around for another, you know, 200, 300 years, you know, or longer, we need to do something. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and we've grown accustomed to this, the the conditions that's, that allowed our species to uh, rise on this planet and we need to fortify that. We need to secure it. If we don't, then we're we're open to a very uncertain future. Hmm. I like that. Well, the last question is actually now you get to ask me a question. <laughs> what can your generation do to take over the reins for fixing the problems that my generation inflicted on you that that is a it's an interesting question and i think that i think this episode and having this conversation with y'all has i think there there are several different aspects there's always there's always i feel like there's this generational gap or generational um tension between all all generations have that tension. And I think that this technology that y'all developed, it makes sense. It is simple. And now what it needs to be done is it needs to be implemented. And that implementation is could very easily be picked up by any of the geologic managers or engineering managers at a at a midsize or major oil and gas company who is looking to start shifting into CCS or shifting into a stronger ESG position. And those are the people who very well could be anywhere from 30 to 50 years old. And so those are the decision makers now. They it's weird to say that people my age are are running hundreds of millions of dollars or billion dollar companies, but that's the truth. And ultimately if they if they see the value and they they have those those same um, convictions of wanting to see a a future for the next two, three hundred years, wanting to terraform the earth back to a more comfortable CO2 concentration, then, then I think they are in the position to make those decisions and to start putting money forward. So I think that's the, that's the key still learning and then also partnering and implementing. Good. Because we're ready to, my generation didn't screw up the planet on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we, we, we were doing our best and we did a lot of things right, but now it's time to pass the torch to your generation. That's one of the reasons I came back to teach hmm. is, is we need your generation to step up. And yep. that's what I'm looking for. I have, I have great confidence. I see the students that I work with, people like you, Joe, 
um, that give me great faith that we will we will do this, we will solve this. Hmm. Uh, but it does take a deliberate decision to step up. Yep, absolutely. Scott, what about you? Do you have a question for me? I don't know how I can follow Ken's question. <laughs> um, I, I, there's a factor of time involved too. I mean, yeah, it, we need people to step up and all that, but we're talking about our, you know, this planet, our home, or the civilization of humankind. How, how do you suppose we address the idea that we need to be looking not in the short term, but in the long term? constantly it's a constant effort how do we imbue the stewardship of this planet and our society of through time to be consistent through generations even because we can't be uh we can't be in a disposable world anymore we have to be looking at this long term how do yep. we do that? How do we infuse that? Did we infuse it in your generation? Or, or do, can we improve the technique? How do we, like I said, instill that stewardship? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that I think is a, it's a tricky question in <laughs> in different dimensions or different regards. And so for me, having these conversations, there's there's one thing that continually comes back to exactly what you're talking about and looking at generations of, of stewardship. And I think that ultimately comes back to faith. And so with indigenous populations up in Canada and their, their faith, they basically say, we are here stewarding this earth, not for us, but for our children's children's children. And they think out to seven, eight, nine generations for me being being a christian and looking at it from the the aspect of god gave us this earth to steward it and to be stewards of the earth ultimately like it's not i think the the one aspect that i see through these different faith systems is that it's not about you it's about helping others and about about making it better than what what you had it and about basically about paying it forward almost. So I think it, it's a, it's a tricky question there because for me, it's my faith for somebody else. It may be their child who is like that child ultimately is going to outlive you God willing. And that, and that is what you are doing, whatever you're doing for. And so it is having that understanding, not not of an individualistic viewpoint, but of something that is a communal viewpoint and of something that is that is forward looking and and societal looking. Because I think that is that selfless mindset is where where you start saying, I'm willing to pay a little bit more so I can buy organic food so that I can support regenerative agriculture or I'm willing to pay a little bit more for renewable diesel in my truck. So that way I can support a low carbon fuel standard, or I'm willing to pay for renewable energy so that I have, so that I can have a lower carbon footprint. I still haven't been convinced to pay for, for 
carbon credits on my flights. <laughs> but that's because I'm still a little bit leery of the carbon credit market. So I think that that's coming back to it. I think that that is ultimately what it is, is, is whatever that is for you that, that gives you a community and society viewpoint standard, not thinking of yourself, but thinking of others. So thank you, Ken and Scott for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. It's thank been you. wonderful to catch up with you. It's good to see you again, Joe, and see how successful you've been. Um, Great to see our students going on and prospering, and, and you clearly are a great example of that. That's great to see. Well, thank you, Ken, for the kind words, and thank you, too, again, for joining me on the show today. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating, leave a review, and share this episode with a friend. Doing these simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience, and if you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, mention connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. And if you're in the Houston area, go try out the Canon, mention OGGN, and they will give you a free day pass. Whenever I'm in Houston, I'm at the Canon. And don't forget, it's also where we host our monthly industry mixers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.